Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, I'm Jason Cowley, editor of chief of the New Statesman, and I'm in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 24th of March. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we are discussing the ways in which coverage of Russia's war in Ukraine is different. Good morning, everyone. Ukrainians, much fake information has appeared on the internet, as if I had called to lay down arms and if there had been an evacuation. Here's the situation. I'm here. We won't lay down arms. Then, we turn to how the war has changed domestic political positioning for world leaders. And I know that it's the instinct of the people of this country, like the people of Ukraine, to choose freedom every time. I can give you a couple of famous recent examples. When the British people voted for Brexit in such large numbers, I don't believe it was because they were remotely hostile to to foreigners. It's because they wanted to be free. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Now, before we get started, two things. Firstly, we have been trying to get these out on the same day that we record in the past few weeks because things have been moving so quickly. But today we are recording on Wednesday. It is Thursday, as you're listening to this know. So if anything is is slightly not quite up to date, we apologize and thank you for for understanding. Secondly, and very we're, we're very excited, very pleased that for the first time ever in World Review history, our editor-in-chief, Jason Cowley is here with us. And in addition to being our editor-in-chief, he is the author of a new book out next week. It is called Who Are We Now? Stories of Modern England. Jason, congratulations on the book and thank you so much for being with us today. It's um, an honor to be here. So one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on is that you know this conflict, this war, it's, it's sort of unique in how it's being covered and, and discussed in, in the media. And you have been editor-in-chief of the New Statesman for, for years. How do you think the coverage of this war is either similar to or, or distinct from coverage of, for example, the war in Syria? It's a good question. I mean, we, we, we dedicated a lot of resource to the war in Syria, what we call the Syrian tragedy, which has raged on for years. And what is it? 500,000 dead, um, four times that number injured, what, 13 million people displaced. Before the Ukraine war, it led to the worst refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War. And we, we covered it 
rigorously and forensically, both through our essayists and historians and experts in London, but also we had reporters on the ground, notably Quentin Somerville, the BBC's brilliant foreign correspondent, who's actually in Ukraine at the moment. But he was um, in the war zones in, in Syria, certainly, particularly during the collapse of Islamic State at the very end, or the very end of Islamic State. This war's different, though, because it's in Europe. The images are so shocking, I think. I mean, my mother is a, a child of the Second World War. She's 86. She has two sisters, one, who, one who's 90, and the oldest sister's 93. All of them remember the bombs falling on London during the Second World War. My mother and her, her middle sister were evacuated to the southwest of England to escape the Blitz. And I was talking to my mother about the Ukraine war at the weekend, and she's just devastated by the images that she's seeing, tanks rolling into European cities, shelling, sieges, the destruction of schools and hospitals, civilian targets, children, pregnant women, and so it goes on. And she was saying to me, I never thought I'd see this again in my lifetime in Europe. Of course, we, we witnessed it more recently in Syria. But I think it's such a shock to people in the United Kingdom, but beyond the United Kingdom in other European countries. And it's, it's bringing about, I think, a fundamental shift in, in society. You know, there's there was so much talk for years now of Russian disinformation and, and Russian, you know, Russian narratives. When you are um, shaping the coverage of this war, how how do you make sure that that you can at, at once recognize them, but also make sure that they don't take over the truth of the matter? For example, we have a piece out this week on Ukrainian civic nationalism and how, for all the talk of, for example, the Azov Battalion and the far right in Ukraine. There has actually been a concerted effort amongst Ukrainians to develop a more civic nationalism, a more multi-ethnic nationalism. But I think the while there is a far right in Ukraine and there there is the Azov Battalion, the idea of a Ukrainian far right really cut through, and that is in part thanks to years of um, a Russian a Russian narrative in this. Do you feel like Russian disinformation is something that you need to deal with in commissioning coverage of the conflict, in shaping coverage of the war, or has it? We also saw it in Syria. So has it just been going on for so long, Russian disinformation, that it's not even a factor? Well, it's a factor, but it's an ongoing process. I mean, we've we've been very acutely aware of Russian disinformation, Russian propaganda going back a long time in the Putin regime. Don't forget, we had the in the in the UK, we had the Brexit referendum in 2016, and there's been endless coverage about how much intervention the Russians played. In, in the vote through, through their proxies and social media warriors and, and so on. And of course, in Europe, many regimes or certainly many political parties, particularly on the nationalist far right, have been fellow travellers of um, Putin and Putinism. One thinks in particular of, of some of the far right parties in Eastern Europe, but also some of the Scandinavian populist rights and also in France, the National Front and Marie Le Pen. There's been flirtations with strongman, nationalist, populist politics. And, you know, the Statesman's a liberal publication. It's a sceptical publication. And we have around the publication experts, historians, reporters. So I'm drawing on their expertise, their knowledge, their courage as reporters through our networks to, to guide me in the decisions I make week by week. One of the things that's been really striking to see in this war is how social media, which you just mentioned, has been used by Ukrainians, right? So you have Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's videos saying that he's still here, he hasn't left. You know, uh, Ukrainians have been able to get their message out through 
Twitter, through various social media platforms. It just seems like it it creates another layer of possibility for coverage. I was wondering if you could reflect a bit on on how social media helps or, or hurts shape the coverage of the war. It's certainly transformative and certainly helps get images out where you haven't got um, Western um, film crews on the ground. You're using kind of citizen journalism in, in, in many ways where individuals are, are recording atrocities on their phones and, and they're being distributed via social media. Social media was used particularly effectively um, in eastern Aleppo when that part of the city was under under siege and the Russian warplanes were absolutely hammering it. And you know, there were obviously within eastern Aleppo a lot of um, Islamist militias. But nevertheless, a lot of images came out of eastern Aleppo which enabled us to see quite what was taking place, the bombing of hospitals and schools. And we're seeing something similar in Mariupol and elsewhere. Of course, you have to be sceptical and you have to kind of try and source the material as, as best you can. You mentioned the Azov brigades who are operating in Mariupol in particular and, and some of the images that Western broadcast media are using are coming directly from their activists on the ground and, and their troops. But Channel 4 News, for example, made a point of saying these images have come from the Azov brigades and you know we, we can't verify them, but nevertheless, we've chosen to show them. So what you do, you, you provide a kind of deeper context for the viewer, for the listener, for the reader, and then you try and work your way through it. As ever, there's the cliche about the fog of war, but it's true in, in, in many ways too. That there is always a fog during war times and you have to kind of try and peer through the darkness and try and work out what is authentic, what isn't. And you also use multiple sources. And you use the experts you know who are actually in the country. We've been running reports from BBC um, foreign correspondents, Channel 4 correspondents. We had some of our own team went to the borderlands to report on the refugee crisis as the refugees were coming out of Ukraine into Hungary, into Poland, into Moldova. We had our own reporters there. So it's it's a process, and I think we're getting it broadly right at the moment. And and Katie, I wanted to ask you, because you were in Russia during the in, back in 2014 covering Crimea, have you noticed differences in coverage between this war and the annexation of Crimea, or or in reception of the coverage, right, in, in the audience, in the reader, in the listener, viewer um, understanding of these two different crises? Or, well, they're one crisis, these two different parts of the same crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I really took away from covering that war was just to understand how different it looks depending which information sources and, and which media you have access to. So you could be on the ground in Ukraine, you know, seeing with your own eyes Russian soldiers fighting there. And then we would go back to our base in Moscow and find that friends and, and colleagues' own parents wouldn't believe them about what they had just seen because Russian state television news, which is which is so dominant there, was telling them a different story. And so I think the propaganda and the, the wild claims that we're seeing come out of the Kremlin about what they're doing and who's responsible, I think it, it can be easy to look at that from here in the West and to say, well, you know, that, that seems plainly ludicrous. How, how could anybody possibly believe that. But I think it really is important to delve down into where are people getting their information from and how are these narratives playing? Because you know we've seen the example here 
in the United States where you can freely access uh, any information you want, um, people are able to cocoon themselves within a bubble, are able to buy into quite outlandish um, conspiracy theories and, and take real physical actions as, as a result of them. So, you know, these, these information silos and bubbles are real. And I think what you see happening in, in Russia now is a really concerted effort to close off access to external information. You know, the, the difference now with then was, you know, if you wanted to, if you were motivated and, and interested, you could just call up the internet and you could freely access Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all sorts of Ukrainian channels. You know, you could do your own research. Since the start of this conflict, that has become very, very hard. The Kremlin is, is really cracking down. Um, on, on sources of information. You know, it's illegal to call it a war now in Russia. That has a real powerful effect. And I think that's, you know, that's important. And that is something that we're looking at in coverage here is how is this war being communicated in Russia? And what effect does that have? Is that a, is that a constraint or is there actually public support for, for what Putin is doing there? I'm glad you mentioned how this has made things change within Russia for average Russians and also for Putin, because it allows me to transition to our next segment. So we've spoken a fair bit on this podcast, obviously, about what this means for Ukrainian leadership, but also what this means for Russian leadership. But this week, we wanted to broaden it out a little bit. Just to be very clear, we understand that this war is about Ukrainian national sovereignty and the right of Ukrainian people to live in dignity. It is not about the poll numbers of politicians around the world. However, the reality is that the Russian war in Ukraine has had implications domestically for various world leaders. So if you look at Joe Biden, for example, broadly speaking, the American population, Democrats and Republicans, and critically independents are increasingly supportive of his stance toward Ukraine. Jason, I wanted to ask, what is the situation in the United Kingdom? Before this war, it seemed that people were speaking about, you know, with all these scandals, was Boris Johnson going to be out? But has this changed that for him? It has. He was under real trouble over over a series of lockdown breaches and parties that took place in and around 10 Downing Street. And a lot of Conservative MPs were saying it was, it was only a matter of time before he was ousted by the party itself. That's over at the moment. Johnson's safe. And actually, Johnson's very popular in Ukraine because of the British support, uh, military support to that country, although the British were very slow on offering support and assistance to refugees. But what there is at large in, in the UK, but also I think across Europe, certainly Western Europe, but also Eastern Europe, is, is a new moral seriousness. Olaf Scholz, the, the social democratic German leader, used a word um, recently, which we like a lot on the New Statesman, Zeitenwende, which I think he, he meant what we're witnessing is not just an era of change, but a change of era. In other words, this is a fundamental shift in international politics, a Zeitenwende. And that seems to be the case. Look at, look at the way the Germans have shifted on defence spending, um, their NATO target, 2% of GDP they're going to meet, a rearmament programme, the assistance they've, they've sent, the military assistance they've sent to the Ukrainians. And we're seeing something similar in the UK, but also in France and Poland and elsewhere. This is a new era of international politics. And we've been passing through really a, a period of perpetual crisis, certainly in the UK, you know, we've had the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. Then we had the European Brexit referendum in 2016. UK voted to leave. The Brexit wars that followed as the country tried to understand what had happened. Then we went into the two years of the COVID pandemic, the, the first pandemic. 
in the UK at least for 100 years. And we're coming out of the pandemic straight into the most serious European war since 1945. I mean, those events collectively concentrate the mind. And some of these forces were already in place, such as the return of the nation state, the role of active government, the role of the military, patriotism, but all of them have been accelerated by the war in Ukraine. And I think we're struggling to understand what's happening and where we're beginning to form or formulate ideas about how what's happening will change British politics, but also European politics. Already we're seeing better relations between the UK and the EU. After the Brexit debacle, things are somewhat improving. They're beginning to talk to each other like grown-ups once again rather than as antagonists or belligerents. So this, this is a fundamental shift, Emily, I think. I'm so glad you mentioned Brexit. We have a clip from ITV. This is um, former Ukrainian President Poroshenko asking Boris Johnson to please stop comparing the war in Ukraine to Brexit. How many citizens of United Kingdom died because of Brexit? Zero. Can you imagine how many Ukrainians died before they met Putin aggression. Thousands. What have, what have you made of that, Jason, of Johnson sort of likening himself and, and his country's plight to Ukraine? Can you sort of see where he's coming from? Is it to create sympathy within the British public for Ukraine? What, did, what were your thoughts? I, I, I thought it was um, absurd, stupid and, and typical Boris Johnson. Now, he, he strives for seriousness, but he fundamentally lets himself down and, and again and again by showing how unserious he can be. I mean, that, that comparison was ludicrous. He was making it in front of um, delegates at a, a conservative conference. And I think he thought he was being amusing, comparing the plight of Ukrainians to, to Brexit supporting conservative voters. But it, but it was a fundamental mistake. And I think he's since acknowledged that. Uh, one last question for this segment for both of you. Uh, we've been speaking about the realignment of for so-called Western leaders toward Russia or, or even toward themselves. We have not yet spoken really about China, which so far has not really broken with Russia on this. Although, Katie, you can obviously explain the ways in which that's an overly simple statement. But I guess to start with you, Jason, do you think that this will spur the UK, various European countries to take a harder line, not only against Russia, but against China? Certainly a harder, harder line against Russia, as, as we're, we're witnessing through the renewed strategic clarity for NATO, but also the, the sanctions, which are having some effect. I mean, a form of economic warfare has been declared on Russia, but also China, which I think Katie's better place than me to speak about. But surely it gives the West more time now to try and understand and prepare for China's position in relation to Taiwan now, I can't imagine China will uh, attempt to retake Taiwan anytime soon. But I was, I was talking to Professor Steve Tang, a Chinese expert at the University of London, head of the China Institute at SOAS. And he was saying absolutely he expects China to retake Taiwan within the next 10 years. But what the war in Ukraine has done has brought NATO time to prepare their response. And I'll be very interested to, from Katie to hear whether she thinks Steve was being alarmist or you share that view. I, I've heard more ominous predictions. I, I've heard, you know, within, within the next six years. Um, I think the, the continual caveat and the reason to count against that is, you know, 
China is much more cautious in its approach um, than Russia has tended to be. And I think one of the lessons that one would hope China is taking from the current situation is how great the cost of such an operation would be. You know, I think when you look at Xi Jinping's most recent speeches, the form of words he uses to talk about this is that time and momentum are always on China's side. Various people see that as him signaling, and therefore there's no rush to do that. Because while, you know, this is one of the great historical centenary goals for the Chinese Communist Party is the final reunification of China as as they would see it. And as long as Taiwan is outside the Chinese Communist Party's control, that goal cannot be completed. Certainly that is something that Xi Jinping would like to have as part of his legacy. I think there's every reason to believe that he sees himself as a as this, you know, great man of history uh, in the same way that that Putin seems to. But said against that is that the fundamental plank of the Communist Party's legitimacy is providing for citizens, developing the economy, maintaining stability, opportunity, improving prosperity in China. And were they to do that, were they to invade Taiwan, there is a chance that they would ruin performance legitimacy is is the way that, that scholars talk about it, that they would effectively undermine their claim to rule China in a single swift action. So it would be a massive undertaking. And I think the Chinese Communist Party, and, and I think also, by the way, the government on Taiwan will be learning from this, that, that what perhaps Russia and, and possibly China, if, if they did know ahead of time um, that this offensive was planned, you know, this is a much longer, much bloodier, much more difficult fight than I think Russia was prepared for. And I think, you know, one of the lessons that it's important that China learns from this and that is really communicated to, to China by all of the Western powers is that the cost and the resistance of trying to take Taiwan would be similar. This would be all out economic warfare, and it would also not be a walkover in, in military or strategic terms either. And Katie, just to put a finer point on this, do you think that there is concern on the part of on the part of China that this war will further drive European countries and and partners away from China and toward the United States and so on and so forth? Honestly, I think they should be more concerned um, that it will do. I think what we're seeing at the moment is that the position the Chinese government is taking and, and We've seen some softening of some of the, particularly the Western-facing propaganda outlets over over the past week, um, being a little more balanced in, in their coverage. But the position that, that the top-level leadership is taking, and you know, we've seen the Chinese ambassador to Washington talking about this on on Sunday morning television shows here this past weekend, is trying to insist that they are neutral, that they condemn all threats to peace wherever they may be, that they urge restraint from all sides, um, and that they hope that there can be ceasefire talks and a negotiated end to the to the fighting soon. China's trying to maintain this position of what's been described as, as pseudo-neutrality and effectively, you know, pretending that they're not involved, that they haven't chosen a side here. But through that very stance, they have already taken a side. You know, the United States um insists there is intelligence to show that China is strongly considering a Russian request 
for military aid. I think if Chinese officials think that they can walk a sufficiently careful diplomatic line here, that none of this will redound against China's interests, you know, honestly, I think that they're wrong. I think that what we're going to see with with Joe Biden now in Europe is more of a concerted effort to link the two and to make very clear that if China does now provide active support to Russia, that it that it does also stand to, to be penalised and that it will be seen to be taking a side. When you speak about that and Biden's um, slightly more assertive talk, what is it what is it he can he can actually do? We recall what happened in Syria when in the absence of a strategy, Obama laid down his red lines against the use of um, chemical weapons by the Assad regime. And then when those red lines were crossed or violated, following the attack, I think, on eastern Ghouta in the Damascus suburbs, killing hundreds, Obama equivocated, but he didn't act. And that opened the way for Putin's Russia to become the dominant power in Syria. So what is it that Biden can do beyond issuing warnings to China? I, I think the, th- the threat is secondary sanctions and export controls. It's making it it's effectively indicating to to China that Russia's economy is deteriorating rapidly. You have a a, a future in which you want to be able to to openly trade with Europe and the United States. You want access to dollar denominated trades. You want to remain part of the international financial system. That's what is currently being denied to Russia. And Chinese institutions would face the same kind of penalties if they violate sanctions. I think the signaling is, you know, at least don't make it obvious that you are helping Russia. I don't I don't think there's any sense that China can be persuaded to drop Russia and not to trade with Russia. But China at least needs to be persuaded not to violate sanctions and not to try to mitigate the efforts to, to bring real pressure to bear on Russia. And I think I think that is an argument that has some, you know, that that does have some salience in, in Beijing. I think we've seen them since 2014, on the one hand, very, very loudly, very volubly condemn sanctions against Russia post-Crimea, but on the other hand, in practice, quietly abide by them. I think that's the kind of minimum level that, that the United States and, and European countries should, should hope to get from China. But I think that the danger for China, and why I say I honestly think they should be more concerned is I think there is growing reputational damage to being seen to be standing alongside Russia, to to be refusing to condemn. The Chinese ambassador was on Face the Nation on CBS at at the weekend. He refused to condemn the invasion because he said that was naive. Condemnation alone wasn't going to bring an end to the operations. But when you see the kind of atrocities, you know, children being buried in mass graves, attacks on on hospitals, on, on civilian shelters, but do we know if these images are being replayed um, beyond the West? I was speaking to a friend of mine this morning who's a long-standing or was a long-standing editor at the Hindustan Times. He was a managing editor, Shoma Bhattacharya. And he was saying there was a lot of early reporting of the war in India, but it subsequently quietened down somewhat. And India, of course, strategically positioned between China and, and Russia and has always had a non-aligned foreign policy has never fallen in behind the United States in the way that Pakistan did during the Cold War. But is the coverage as extensive beyond the West? Do, do, we, do we know that? I don't know. Emily, do you know? 
I think that in India, it, it's not that it's not being covered. It's just that it's not being covered in the same way that it is here. Yeah. I think there's less clarity, right, onto who was on which side in this, because India, as you say, is not on one side. But it, but it, it abstained to, con- uh, to condemn the aggression of the United Nations. Exactly. And I think, you know, there's some question as to how vocal Modi will be behind the scenes versus in public. They still get 60 to 70 percent of their military equipment from Russia, although how they're going to continue to replenish that with the sanctions on Russia and um, tech export bans to Russia. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but there's this uh, there's this talk of, you know, are we are we self are we self-reliant or resilient? What does that mean? Um I think there was, you know, there. I think the West, as we talked about earlier, um, has figured out how to come together and stand against Russia. Beyond that, beyond, let's say, the United States, Canada, Europe, that's far less clear. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system.
so that's that's sort of the challenge that Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi finds himself in. But we've been speaking about current world leaders, uh, be it Modi or Johnson or Biden or Xi Jinping. And we are now going to move on to a past world leader because it is time for a section that we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. Very good. <laughs> so our question this week comes to us from Scott in Northern Ireland. And the question is, would Russia have invaded Ukraine if Donald Trump were still U.S. president? Or did his Trump's behavior towards the U.N., NATO, and energy policy generally pave the way for the Russian invasion? I, as you can imagine, have a lot of thoughts on this. But uh, Jason, we will start with you. Wow, what a question. Um, Donald Trump. The thing about Donald Trump is because of his madman approach to international affairs, by which I, I re- I'm making a reference to Richard Nixon, not saying that Trump is insane, because it was hard to second guess Trump. I mean, one he had a critique of China, which was rigorous. And I think Biden's position on China is not too dissimilar. He had a critique of NATO, um, that some of the NATO powers were free riding on the back of American wealth and power and influence. Look what's happened with Germany. We spoke about the Zeitenwender how the Germans have now shifted. Trump mysteriously was always very soft on Putin and Russia. He seemed to be in awe of Putin and Putinism. Would Putin have acted in the way he has if Trump was in power? That, that's the question. Obama laid down his red lines in Syria There were against chemical weapons. There was a chemical weapons attack in 2013, and Obama did nothing, which empowered Putin. There was a chemical weapons attack in 2017, and Trump responded. He did fire American missiles at a, at a Syrian airbase in Western Syria. That was unexpected, unpredictable. And I remember the afternoon of the American strike, Trump was particularly wild on, on Twitter, abusing Assad for his murderous, murderousness, I think we can say. Similarly, a year later, there was another coordinated attack, this time involving the UK, France and the US on Syria after the use of chemical weapons. Now, during the period of um, Trump's presidency, Putin no doubt exploited the weakness and divisions of the West, particularly within NATO. He's gone into Ukraine. What would Trump have done? Initially, Trump said just recently it was strategic genius of Putin to try and annex more territory in the east of Ukraine. But he's also been praising the response of Zelensky, you know, he, Zelensky, the man of the moment, has impressed Trump with his courage, his defense of the Ukrainian homeland. I think Putin would have been extremely wary of Trump's response and not able to predict it. Would it have stopped the invasion? Probably not. But I don't think we can second guess how Trump would have responded. Right. There's an interesting dichotomy with Trump, because on the one hand, as you say, for year, like years and years and years expressed admiration for Russian President Vladimir Putin at that summit in 2018 in Helsinki, appeared to believe Putin on meddling in the American election over U.S. intelligence, reportedly said, why is this the G7? Why is it not the G8? So what? Russia annexed Crimea. Russia should be here. There are reports that he was going to further weaken NATO had he been elected to a second term. He probably would have been very sympathetic to many of Putin's arguments about Ukraine belonging to Russia's sphere of influence in the lead up to an invasion. However, Trump also, so on the one hand, 
very sympathetic to Putin. We saw him get played time and again by these sort of autocratic strongmen. There was the love letter with um, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. On the other hand, he also was obsessed with seeming tough. And after the, the attack on the Syrian airbase to which Jason referred, he was quoted as saying, or it was reported that he said that it was the, the most he, has, he had enjoyed the presidency to date. So I think perhaps his fondness with Putin may have, you know, maybe Putin wouldn't have felt like he needed to go in because Trump understood his arguments. But I think that if he had invaded with Trump as president, we would be in a very different, in my opinion, scarier situation uh, regarding nuclear war. Because, Emily, we wouldn't know how Trump would respond. Yes, I think the restraint that the Biden administration has shown on trying to contain this to Ukraine, on being very clear that we don't want a nuclear war, that would be out the window. The one thing this situation does not need is to be live tweeted from the White House. We would only ever be one tweet away from really, really dangerous escalation. What the Trump presidency did contribute, and this is for both Russia and China, was it really, and as did Brexit, by the way, it really played into the narrative there of the West in decline and disarray. And I think, you know, that, that is perhaps one factor in looking at why Putin has acted now, he may well have been expecting that the response from the West would have been significantly less unified and less strong than it has been. And the, the Trump presidency has been exhibit number one in both Russia and China for the dysfunction and the, and the disarray um, of, of liberal democracy. So I, I think that is arguably one, one role it would have played. And also, you know, publicly questioning the United States commitment to NATO, as he has done the United States commitment to uh, basing troops in, in South Korea, you know that that's why these kind of statements are, are really dangerous, because it does introduce doubt to the idea of, of whether the United States would stand by its commitment. But you know, I I personally think the the decision for Putin was was on a, a high level assessment of Ukraine leaving Russia's sphere of influence, which has been accelerated by Putin's own actions. And and this was this is an att an attempt to reverse that. I think were Donald Trump president now, you know, there's there's every reason to believe Putin would still have gone ahead. But I think we would be in a much more dangerous than the very dangerous situation that we are currently in. Yeah, and I think we will agree that Putin's decision is will turn out to be a catastrophic miscalculation. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. With that. Thank you again to our editor-in-chief, Jason Cowley, for stopping by the podcast. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to all of you who send in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday because Katie is going to conduct an interview with Bonnie Lin on China's positioning vis-a-vis -vis Russia. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.